and you is right and good in the sight of, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. And then our New Testament reading from James chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought forth, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. What we have just heard is that same word of truth, for it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are studying the uh, opening chapters of Matthew's Gospel, and we came last week to the temptation of Jesus. And we looked at both the context, which brings us lessons, and then also looked at the first of the three temptations. And we saw that Jesus in these temptations is being tempted as our first parents were tempted. Uh, God put humanity down in a good garden, and uh, we read in Genesis, the opening chapters, that uh, our first parents decided to determine for themselves what was right and what was wrong, what was good and what was evil. And as a result, humanity found itself in a wilderness of thorns and thistles. So Jesus goes out to the wilderness in order to start humanity all over again and to face, as did our first parents, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. All the temptations that we face fall in one way or another under at least one, sometimes all three, uh, of those uh, aspects of the ways that we are so very temptable. But unlike our first parents, uh, James said here that uh, we are tempted because of the desires of our heart, and our Lord was fully human as well as fully divine and had desires, and so was temptable, and yet he never gave way to it to the next stage, which is desire when you yield to it leads to sin and sin to death. And so we're watching him as he grapples in temptation at the front end, and we should be wonderfully encouraged uh, at this picture kept for us. 
Uh, I want, before I read this second temptation, just to remind you of the context and of the way that we're approaching these three temptations. The context itself, I said last week, provides us with two warnings and two encouragements, and very quickly. The warnings are simply these. Jesus had just been baptized, and in his baptism, we read that the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit came down upon him in visible form, and God's voice spoke and said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, what could be a higher spiritual moment than that, barring just standing in the presence of God, life behind us here? And yet, the first thing that happened was we read that literally the next thing, that Jesus was then led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit in order to be tempted by the devil. As James said, God doesn't tempt, but it doesn't mean that he does not sometimes lead us right into places where we are going to be tempted and tested because he wants us to learn to stand and to do battle with the enemy. So there is no, the first warning is there is no spiritual experience so high and so glorious that it puts us beyond temptation. Some of us think, you know, I'm just too tempted. I'm going to go to a conference. If I go to a conference and maybe learn some new stuff and maybe even experience the power of God in my life, boy, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to have to wrestle with this stuff. Well, the Bible says kind of the opposite. The more glorious your experience, the more the enemy is going to come and try to sap it, and the more you're going to find yourself in the battle. So when God is moving and stirring in a powerful way in your life and you find yourself wonderfully alive to the things of God, don't, don't fail to remember that that is a moment when temptation also comes. That's the first warning. The second is there's just no place you can run and hide from temptation. Uh, in the early church, there was a whole group of people, sort of the early, they were called the Desert Fathers. I don't know if there are any mothers among them, but they were the de Desert Fathers who went out to the wilderness to get away from the wicked cities of the, of the empire because they just couldn't bear living anymore in the midst of it all. And they thought if we go out to the desert, we can get free of all of this. And all the writings we have from them uh, confess that the first awful discovery they made was that they'd left everybody else, but they hadn't left themselves. And so they brought all their stuff right out into the wilderness. And of course, the enemy has full access to us, whether we're in the wilderness or in the heart of the city. So there's no place so desolate and distant that we can go. But the good news that we saw is that, uh, first of all, just as the enemy can find us there, so can the Lord. He is. He's with his people wherever we go, and he has already defeated that last song. We're, we're, we're fighting a defeated foe. The battle has been won, and it's simply a matter of living in the victory rather than suddenly letting loose like Peter when he stopped looking at Jesus and looked at the water. He began to sink, and that happens to us when we get our eyes off of him. So the first encouragement is the Lord is there with us in the midst of it, He's stronger than the enemy, and he, I, I don't know, I was talking with somebody the other day, I'm really going to read the text in a minute, um, and they, they were studying Revelation, I forget who it was, sorry, 
Um, but I said, I love Eugene Peterson's book, his little book on Revelation called Reverse Thunder. If you're studying Revelation and you haven't read it, read it, it is wonderful. And my favorite moment in it is when you finally reach the battle of Armageddon. This is it, this is the big show, every battle, the whole narrative of scripture has been moving toward this point when the final cataclysmic battle is going to take place. And you know, we've seen it in books and even uh, some second rate films have tried to depict. And you know, we, we have this picture of this huge thing happening. And I'd never really thought about this as many times as I'd read it. Peterson said, you know, finally you're ready for the biggest battle of all. And in one verse, it just says, then God sent fire from heaven and threw him into hell and that was it. He said, if you went out for popcorn, you missed the whole thing. <laughs> because this is a defeated foe and God is sovereign. So as we study the temptations, remember that he who is for us is greater than he who's against us. That's the first encouragement. The second is that being tempted is not sin. It can lead to sin if you yield to it. But our Lord Jesus was tempted, the author of Hebrews says, he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. So don't get knocked down and discouraged when you find yourself suddenly again tempted to things that you thought you'd left behind. There's no sin in being tempted. We're all temptable. The sin is in yielding to it. The joy is in triumphing over it. And I hope that you're getting some joys and I hope this study will lead you to more. We looked at the first temptation last time and it was a temptation that we said was personal and concrete because it was aimed not at Jesus' disciples, it was personal, it was aimed at him. I, I don't have any problem with your temptations. I can triumph over all of them. My problems with my temptations, the ones that come personally to me. And Jesus was hungry. He'd been fasting 40 days and he was hungry. And so it was concrete. And the enemy came and said, and the temptation was to doubt the word of God. So he attacked Jesus at Jesus' greatest point of weakness at that moment. In his humanity, he was hungry. And the enemy says, okay, God said you're his son. Would God treat his son that way? Would he let you be out here in the wilderness to starve? Use your powers if you're gonna be the son of God and display, make him known, you need to eat. So turn these stones into bread. And it was a temptation first to doubt the word of God and then to use what God had given him in order to get what at the moment he most wanted. And Jesus answered as we saw in the fullness of the spirit by quoting from Deuteronomy. All three times he quotes Deuteronomy. So it might be good occasionally to read the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus found it quite useful in the wilderness. He, he, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Okay, that was the first. Now we come to the second. Begins in verse five, down through verse seven. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, 
and on their hands they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The gospel of Christ, thanks be to God. The first temptation was at Jesus' greatest point of weakness in that moment. He was physically hungry. The second temptation is at Jesus' greatest point of strength. That's the whole key to first understanding the nature, the point. We said we'll look at all of these through the the point of the temptation in the sense of the tip of the spear. Where's the attack coming from? Where's the point of attack? And then what's the purpose of the attack? And then finally, how do we defend against this attack when it comes to us? So first, the point of the attack, it's against Jesus' greatest strength. Jesus has resisted the enemy by quoting scripture. And so Satan says, okay, two can play that game. I know the scripture. I can quote scripture right back to you. You want to uphold God's word. You want to uphold God's honor. You want to be sure that you're fulfilling God's word. Well, what about Psalm 91? Let's fulfill this word. Is it not also written? And he quotes. Quotes Psalm 91. That God has promised to take care of his people. That he's not going to let anyone defeat you, destroy you. It's, if you haven't read Psalm 91, it is a, it's a powerful, beautiful psalm. It's very precious to me because uh, way back at 9-11, uh, my son was a young uh, Marine infantry sergeant, and he was in one of the first groups sent in to Afghanistan. And he and I, even though at that point he was not walking with the Lord, uh, he knew he was going into a serious place and we pledged to each other that every day we would pray for him, Psalm 91. And so throughout that almost a year that he was there, every morning I prayed Psalm 91 for my son. And it is this promise of protection. Thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look on your enemy. So Satan quotes this and says, does not the word say that he will will not let you strike your foot against a stone? He will send his angels to catch you up and protect you? So throw yourself down and prove that word to be true. If you're the son of God, it's time you start fulfilling scripture in ways that everyone can see. And so right here in this place where people are worshiping, they've gone up to the temple, this is the place to do it. Show them all who you are. Show that God's promises are true and let this promise be fulfilled. It is, what's the point of the spear, the tip of the spear? It is the temptation to presumption, to presume upon God's word. And this, brothers and sisters, for those who want seriously to follow the Lord and live out his word, this is a danger again and again and again. 
Sometimes it's not subtle at all. I've had dear friends who were serious, so serious about the things of God, diagnosed with cancer, cancer that is treatable with surgery and chemotherapy, and say, no, does not Psalm 103 say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. He who has forgiven all our iniquities and healed all our diseases, he's promised he's going to do that. Is healing not in the atonement? Yes, it's in the atonement. And so I'm going to trust the Lord. This is going to be a display of his glory. I'm going to show. And so they've laid hold of a scripture when God was offering them healing through ordinary means and have thrown themselves down. And every single one of them, now I know there are cases and I know that God is able to heal yet today. I'm not saying we always pray for healing. But every friend of mine who's done that has died of cancer. And I believe it was because they were presuming, they thought that they could take a scripture and force God's hand and say, I have this in your word, therefore you have to do this. I don't want surgery, I don't want to go through chemo, and this will be a display of your glory. And so that's exactly the kind of thing that sometimes is written in large, but it's also so subtle. We do it every day. I know I do it every time. Every time I let myself just run for a while in my thinking or go ahead and lose my cool or, or watch something that I'm, I'm like, if Jesus walked in, I don't know if I'd finish this movie, but gee, I've got an hour invested in it and it is pretty, you know. Uh, What's the underlying thing that's going on? What I'm really saying is, I know that I'm your child and you promised to forgive me. So in Luther's words, I'm going to sin boldly and uh, claim forgiveness later when I feel a little bad about it. That's exactly what he's talking. That is, that is the line of temptation that presume, and for most of us who are evangelical Christians, we, we've got justification. We're, we're not trying to save ourselves. We know we can't. Um, our danger is the other side, the ditch on the other side of the road. And Satan's a judo expert. He doesn't care whether he gets you down in the ditch of wallowing in the filth and corruption of, of wickedness, or if you're pulling against that, he'll just give you, let your arm go or give you a little bump and put you in the ditch of legalistic Phariseeism. He doesn't care which ditch you're in. As long as you're not on the gospel road and the gospel road is the one that says, I can never do enough, be enough to deserve God's grace. That's why it's grace and not merit. But because I have known the grace and mercy of the Lord because he's done something for me, and I know that he has also done something in me. He has sent his spirit. He's begun to change my affections. I need to now begin increasingly to walk in glad and joyful obedience because his ways lead to life and joy and peace. And all this promise stuff over here actually leads to brokenness and pain 
and her. I can't tell you how many dads over the years have come to me miserably unhappy and saying, I just can't make this go anymore. Sometimes wives too. I think wives are often better at sticking than the guys, but sometimes with little children involved, I've just said, you know, I, I see you with your kids. I know how much you love them. Would you be willing to die for your children? Yes, in a moment. Then I'm going to ask you to live for them. I'm going to ask you to be there in the morning when they wake up. I'm going to ask you to hang in there, to stay, to live for someone else and realize that that is the only way at the end of the day to look back on your life and realize that you really knew the presence and power and victory that God offered you. I'm not saying for all of you who've gone the other way, hey, we're all sinners and we're all broken and God does heal and forgive and put lives back together. But oh man, if you're this side of it, don't listen to the enemy on the presumption that because I'm God's child, he will forgive me. I'm not saying he won't forgive you. He will if you're his child. But one of the marks of being his child is that at some point, you start working for the family business, you know? You start behaving like that's who you are. Harry Reeder, who's the pastor of Briarwood uh, in Birmingham, that's the mothership of the PCA, for those of you who don't know. Um, Harry and I were in the same class, uh, high school class we're in Charlotte. I know, I know, he looks 10 years older than I do. I know, thank you, but, but that, uh, sorry, Harry. Um, and we still laugh or, and yet speak with gratitude of the fact that every time we were to go out representing the school, our principal, D.K. Pittman, who had a voice like the Lord speaking, would say, Gentlemen, remember who you are and where you're from. I would say that to you this morning as I say it to myself. If you claim the name of Jesus, remember who you are. Remember where you're from. And the enemy will always come to you and say, it's okay, throw yourself down. He has promised to hold you. He's promised he won't let you make shipwreck of your life. Well, he's talking in that psalm to people that are in the battle, people that are on the path, people that are following Christ, who in the midst of the battle may get tossed. He says, I won't let it be to your destruction. Are you in the battle today? Or are you perhaps living a life of presumption. Paul says virtually the same thing in Romans chapter 2 when he says, you know, do you accuse all these other people of being wicked while you are presuming on the grace of God yourself? Look at your own life. So that's the first part of the point of the temptation. And its purpose really is to be a huge diversion to the spiritual battle that we're in, the real battle. 
that God's promises speak to. If, if you know Psalm 91, you know that the enemy quoted scripture very selectively. He quoted the part that he wanted Jesus to have in his mind, but he didn't mention the verses that immediately following where the promise of God is that you will trample down the head of the serpent. It's a promise that, you know, God is going to give you the power over the enemy. So don't listen to him. Don't let him, don't let him fool you. Don't let him distract you. Don't let him divert you. Look at what God has called you to be and to do. So where does the strength come? The same way, each time, the Spirit and the Word. Jesus, in the strength of the Spirit, quotes an apt scripture. And I want to explain why that scripture is so apt, and then I'll be done, I promise. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Why is that so important? Number one, every Israelite knew Deuteronomy 6, even those that might not have known a lot more scripture. Deuteronomy 6 is where you find what in Hebrew is Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel. It was the prayer that every Israelite prayed every day. Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then he goes on to talk about the people and their history, and he says, don't again put God to the test as you put him to the test at Massah in the wilderness. Now, why is that so important and so key? Because when Moses said that, and I appreciated so much Ken's keying that text up, this is it. They're, they're there. They're ready to cross over, and God has said to Moses, you can't go in with the people. And so Deuteronomy is the Greek word for the for this book, which means the second law, Deutero, second, nomos law, the second giving of the law. And so Moses is sitting there reiterating, retelling the story before he goes up to die. Now, what is Moses' recollection of Massah in the wilderness? Massah is a word that means test. It's where God's people put the Lord to the test. And it has not one, but two references. One was Moses' moment of one of his greatest victories before the people. And the second was his moment of greatest defeat. The first is Massah in the wilderness of sin, S-I-N. The second was the Massah Meribah in the wilderness of Zin. Scholars don't agree on whether it's the same place, but it's Meribah. Both of them are testing, and Meribah means quarreling. The people of Israel quarreled. Shortly after they left Egypt, they didn't have any water, and so they all turned on Moses and said, why have you brought us out here? You brought us out here to die. At least we had enough to drink and to eat in Egypt. Why didn't, did you bring us out here to die? Moses goes to the Lord, cries out, and says, what will I do? And the Lord says, take the staff in your hand that uh, you've been using to do my will and parting the waters and all the rest. Take that staff and go before 
the people of Israel to this rock that I will show you and strike the rock. And Moses obeyed. He went to the rock and struck it. And we read that water flowed out and the people had their thirst slaked. Later, perhaps they'd circled back because remember, because of their disobedience and unbelief, they spent 40 years wandering around for what was an 11-day journey from the Red Sea to where they would enter Israel. It was an 11-day journey, and they spent 40 years to make it till that generation died. So much later in the journey, they may be cycled back to the exact same spot, wilderness of Zin, it's now called in Numbers. The first is in Exodus 17, the second is in Numbers chapter 20. Miriam, Moses' older sister who rescued him, has just died. They've mourned her. And now the people begin to cry out again. There's no water for us. So Moses and Aaron go to the Lord and go, you know, we're worn out with this. What are we going to do with this people? And the Lord says, go to the rock and speak to the rock and water will flow. Well, Moses is sick of these people and he apparently remembers the effect it had on them way back at the beginning when he'd struck the rock and water came out. He got some real uh, bona fides for a while. And so he's ready for another moment. He's just sick of them. So he and Aaron stand before the rock. God has said, speak to the rock. Moses says, shall we, whether he's speaking of himself and God or himself and Aaron, he's putting himself in it. Shall you rebels, shall we draw water for you? And he takes his staff and this time hits the rock twice, doesn't speak to it, strikes it twice. And God in his mercy and grace honors Moses and water flows. But then the Lord says, because you have not honored me, you will not go into the land. Now you and I might look at that and say, boy, you know, I think I probably sin worse than that every day. Uh, Why is such a big deal for a guy who has led God's people and kind of is one of the heroes? What's the big deal? Remember last week we looked in our New Testament lesson at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul says to God's people, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There is no temptation taken you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful who will not let you be tempted above what you are able to bear, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. So this is all, you know, part and parcel of the whole temptation piece. Do you remember how chapter 10 begins? It begins by Paul saying, These examples of the Israelites are given to us as illustrations, as examples of disobedience and punishment and grace. And then he says, the rock followed them in the wilderness. And that rock was Christ. I don't think it's over-theologizing to say that all of these things were types and pictures to the Israelites 
of God's redemption. And the first time, strike the rock as Christ would be stricken for us, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brings us peace with God was put on him with his wounds were healed. And so he was struck. But he's never to be struck again. That's why the Mass, with all my affection for my Catholic brothers and sisters, the Mass cannot be a re-sacrificing of Christ. Because Christ is struck but once. The atonement is made but once. And now he says, speak to the rock. Moses strikes it twice. And the author of Hebrews says that when you and I continue to presume upon God's grace and to sin willfully counting on him to let us run our heedless ways and then forgive us when we're tired of sinning. He said, it is as if you crucified him afresh. It is striking the rock that has been once struck for us. And so hear well and heed. I'm preaching to myself always. The temptation to the area of what we think is our greatest strength is often far more dangerous than temptations to what we know to be our weaknesses. One example, and I really am done. A friend of mine uh, years ago was he and his wife were very well-known popular Christian authors on family and raising kids and marriage, lots of books on marriage. And they traveled around, did conferences. I mean, we all revered them for it. About that same time, those of you that are old enough to remember, back before the Soviet Union fell, a young, I believe he was a young German pilot named Rust, uh, but flew a light craft into the Soviet Union under all of their defenses and landed in Red Square. It caused this huge brouhaha. And the, the leaders of the Soviet Union couldn't believe that someone had flown this little, this little, I don't know if it was a Piper Cub or what, but it was something like that. He just flew it in and landed. And just after that was in the news, this friend of mine had an affair someone whom he'd known and dated that he found himself next to on an airplane. And she said, you know, I read some of your stuff and it really could we just, could I spend some time with you, talk to you? Next thing he knew, and he, to his credit, went back and confessed it caused a huge scandal. But he said, I felt when I read about that pilot flying in under the great defenses, he said, I knew exactly how the Soviet leaders felt because I thought this was the one area where I was impregnable, the one area where nobody could get to me. And I was watching all these other areas, and this little plane flew in. (laughs) Beware your greatest strengths, because the enemy knows where you are confident. And he's always coming for us, always until at last, you know, we get to be with the Lord. And then, you know, Armageddon, it shows over. Don't go out for popcorn. The Lord's just going to say, that's it. You know, it's done. He's a defeated foe. 
His doom is sure. Don't fall for his lies when he says, your life would be so much sweeter if you just did this. You're God's child. He'll forgive you. Father, thank you that our Lord Jesus has shown us that we stand in your word. We compare scripture with scripture. We say, no, wait a minute. That's twisted. We're not to put you to the test. We're not to presume upon your word. I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters here and for those who I pray are becoming brothers and sisters by grace that we will not fall for the lies of the enemy coming to us through the culture that we swim in like fish in water. May we recognize the call to presumption and stand fast on your word. In Jesus' name, amen.